The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. Out in front to Williams. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Takes a shot, she scores! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IONNWSL.com. This episode is brought to you by Tic Tac. Minty, refreshing, classic. And it's not just the Tic Tac mints. It's the new track by Kanice with beats that'll leave you feeling as refreshed as a Tic Tac and a vibe that'll take you on a ride through 100 layers of flavor. Does it get any fresher than this? Tic Tac, enjoy the bright side. That hundred layer joy ride. Pop one, let's paint the town. Freshman flavors all around. Take a ride on a Tic Tac. Pick up a pack of Tic Tac mints today. Hello. We are listening to the story, The Figure in the Carpet, by Henry James. Usually, these multi-part episodes are standalone, but in this case, I think you might want to listen to part one first, if you haven't already. And now, we turn to part two of this miraculous, long, short story. We'll hear about Henry James at the time of the writing of this, we'll hear about Steven Spielberg and how this fits into his works, and we'll speculate about some figures in the carpet of James's works. And of course, we will hear the conclusion of this story. What is the damn figure in the carpet? Will George Corvick and his bride figure it out? Will the narrator figure it out? Will we? What will it do to them, or us, if we can't? When it comes to this figure, we have a lot of figuring to do. Figuring out, that is, go figure. The figure in the carpet part two, today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Lots to do today. Let's get straight to it. I originally planned for this to be a three-part episode because the story is fairly long, but hey, Let's wrap it up in two if we can, because life is short and we have lots of other works of literature to cover. So many topics for shows and only a hundred or a hundred shows a year, a hundred or so shows a year. We are racing against time, aren't we? When someone like Henry James lives, I'm Jack Wilson, by the way, did I tell you that? (laughs) Were you dying to know? Okay, when someone like Henry James lives his life like a literary monk, never getting married and churning out the kind of high-quality fiction that he did, and reviews and essays too, it begs the question, well, should we see him as Hugh Vereker? Did he put him, did he himself put a figure in the carpet? If you've forgotten, or if you couldn't listen to the first half of this two-part episode for some reason. The figure in the carpet is a secret meaning or intention of the author that carries through all of his books, a design, a pattern, method to the madness, something discernible. But in our story, so far, no one has managed to identify it and name it in print. Reviewers like George Corvick have sensed it, and Vereker himself has announced it to our narrator, but he's given maddeningly few hints. He says, hints? You want hints? Well, haven't I given you hints? 
<laughs> aren't they in my books? Have isn't that what I've been doing? It's all hints. I've I've been shouting it aloud at your blank face. Martin Amos said something similar about his novels uh, that a reviewer would would say or an interviewer would say, well, what's this book about? And the temptation for the author is just to point at the book and say, it's about that. Why should I have to spell out for you what's in it? Read it and see for yourself. I can do no better. Every scene, every line, every word, every punctuation mark has gone into the service of my meaning, and now you want me to give you an extra sentence to boil it all down for you, to spell it all out? I spelled it all out in 95,000 carefully chosen words. That's how I spell things out. You, a reviewer, might do things differently. Well, be my guest. That's kind of Hugh Vereker's position, and we might ask, well... Was it James's position as well? And in revealing Vereker's secret, as we hope this story will do, will James be giving us hints as to his own figure? We see the carpet. All those words are the design. We admire its beauty, but when going from book to book, is there a pattern? So... Literary detective hats are on, discerning critics' neckties are tied. Who was Henry James at the time of this reading? It kind of matters, I think, to know that he was basically mid-career. It matters somewhat. If he had a figure that covers all of his works, he was likely talking about what he'd already written, or possibly talking about what he'd al already written, but also we need to consider the books that he had yet to write. He might have had this figure in mind when he was writing them. Maybe he's telling us what he's already done. Maybe he's also telling us what he's about to do. But in any case, this was 1896 when he was writing The Figure in the Carpet. James had written something like 10 or 11 novels by then and another three or four major novellas. Works already under his belt include Roderick Hudson, The American, the Europeans, Washington Square, what else? The Portrait of a Lady, the Bostonians, the Princess Casamassima, the Tragic Muse, Daisy Miller, and the Aspern Papers. His book on Hawthorne was out as well. Some books that he had not yet written include What Maisie Knew, The Wings of the Dove, The Ambassadors, The Golden Bowl, The Turn of the Screw, and The Beast in the Jungle. He was 52 years old and had been a famous writer for more than 20 years. He would live another 20, his fame and the critical appreciation increasing throughout that time. In some ways, this story, The Figure in the Carpet, was like catnip to his reviewers and admirers. It was like a gauntlet thrown down. Here's what a writer like me is capable of, James seemed to say. I am naming the problem for you. Figures in the Carpet. See if you can find a figure in this carpet that I've laid down. And maybe there's a bit of a lament. We hear Hugh Vereker almost sigh with resignation. I thought it would be obvious. It's my life's work. Don't you see it? Don't you see that you can't just go book by book by book? There's a pattern here. There's meaning. There's me. Ah, well, maybe you're just not capable of seeing it. I didn't plan for it to be so subtle. Hmm. 
Let's take a quick break, and then we'll come back. We'll jump in with the story where we left off last time. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hello, everyone. This is Jack here to tell you about a way to eat better and easier. That's right, Factor and their delicious ready-to-eat meals. These things are amazing. Chef-crafted, always fresh, never frozen. All you do is heat them up and you're ready to go. No prepping, cooking, or cleanup. And you get something healthy, nutritious, and tasty. I love Factor meals, especially on those days when I'm in the office. They're better for me than snacks or junk food, and much cheaper and faster than buying my lunch at a restaurant. You can choose options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, keto, and you can change your schedule to get as much or as little as you need every week, whatever suits you and your family best. Head to factormeals.com slash literature50 and use code literature50 to get 50% off. That's code literature50 at factormeals.com slash literature50 to get 50% off. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. Okay, let's hear what's happening with our narrator. Remember, Hugh Vereker has said, hey, don't trouble yourself with this and don't tell anyone else or they'll be burdened too. And the narrator said, I've already told your biggest fan, George Corvick, who is on fire with the idea. And he no doubt has told his fiancée, Gwendolyn Hermé. Now the narrator returns to talk to George. Chapter 5 When I spoke to George Corvick of the caution I had received, he made me feel that any doubt of his delicacy would be almost an insult. 
He had instantly told Gwendolyn, but Gwendolyn's ardent response was in itself a pledge of discretion. The question would now absorb them and would offer them a pastime too precious to be shared with the crowd. They appeared to have caught instinctively at Vereker's high idea of enjoyment. Their intellectual pride, however, was not such as to make them indifferent to any further light I might throw on the affair they had in hand. They were indeed of the artistic temperament, and I was freshly struck with my colleague's power to excite himself over a question of art. He'd call it letters, he'd call it life, but it was all one thing. In what he said, I now seemed to understand that he spoke equally for Gwendolyn, to whom, as soon as Mrs. Erme was sufficiently better to allow her a little leisure, he made a point of introducing me. I remember our going together one Sunday in August to a huddled house in Chelsea, and my renewed envy of Corvick's possession of a friend who had some light to mingle with his own. He could say things to her that I could never say to him. She had indeed no sense of humor, and, with her pretty way of holding her head on one side, was one of those persons whom you want, as the phrase is, to shake, but who have learnt Hungarian by themselves. She conversed, perhaps, in Hungarian with Korvik. She had remarkably little English for his friend. Korvik afterwards told me that I had chilled her by my apparent indisposition to oblige them with the detail of what Vereker had said to me. I allowed that I felt I had given thought enough to that indication. Hadn't I even made up my mind that it was vain and would lead nowhere? The importance they attached to it was irritating and quite envenomed my doubts. That statement looks unamiable, and what probably happened was that I felt humiliated at seeing other persons deeply beguiled by an experiment that had brought me only chagrin. I was out in the cold, while by the evening fire under the lamp they followed the chase for which I myself had sounded the horn. They did as I had done, only more deliberately and sociably they went over their author from the beginning." There was no hurry, Corvick said. The future was before them, and the fascination could only grow. They would take him page by page, as they would take one of the classics, inhale him in slow drafts, and let him sink all the way in. They would scarce have got so wound up, I think, if they hadn't been in love. Poor Vereker's inner meaning gave them endless occasion to put and to keep their young heads together. Nonetheless, it represented the kind of problem for which Corvick had a special aptitude, drew out the particular pointed patience of which, had he lived, he would have given more striking and, it is to be hoped, more fruitful examples. He at least was, in Vereker's words, a little demon of subtlety. We had begun by disputing, but I soon saw that without my stirring a finger, his infatuation would have its bad hours. He would bound off on false scents, as I had done. He would clap his hands over new lights and see them blown out by the wind of the turned page. He was like nothing, I told him, but the maniacs who embraced some bedlamitical theory of the cryptic character of Shakespeare. To this he replied that if we had had Shakespeare's own word for his being cryptic, he would at once have accepted it. The case there was altogether different. We had nothing but the word of Mr. Snooks. 
I returned that I was stupefied to see him attach such importance even to the word of Mr. Verriker. He wanted thereupon to know if I treated Mr. Verriker's word as a lie. I wasn't perhaps prepared in my unhappy rebound to go so far as that, but I insisted that till the contrary was proved I should view it as too fond an imagination. I didn't, I confess, say, I didn't at the time quite know all I felt. Deep down, as Miss Erme would have said, I was uneasy. I was expectant. At the core of my disconcerted state, for my wanted curiosity lived in its ashes, was the sharpness of a sense that Corvick would at last probably come out somewhere. He made, in defense of his credulity, a great point of the fact that, from of old, in his study of this genius, he had caught whiffs and hints of he didn't know what, faint wandering notes of a hidden music. That was just the rarity, that was the charm. It fitted so perfectly into what I had reported. If I returned on several occasions to the little house in Chelsea, I dare say it was as much for news of Verriker as for news of Miss Ermay's ailing parent. The hours spent there by Corvick were present to my fancy as those of a chess player bent with a silent scowl all the lamp-lit winter over his board and his moves. As my imagination filled it out, the picture held me fast. On the other side of the table was a ghostlier form, the faint figure of an antagonist, good-humoredly but a little wearily secure, an antagonist who leaned back in his chair with his hands in his pockets and a smile on his fine, clear face. Close to Corvick, behind him, was a girl who had begun to strike me as pale and wasted and even, on more familiar view, as rather handsome and who rested on his shoulder and hung on his moves. He would take up a chessman and hold it poised a while over one of the little squares, and then would put it back in its place with a long sigh of disappointment. The young lady, at this, would slightly but uneasily shift her position and look across very hard, very long, very strangely at their dim participant. I had asked them at an early stage of the business if it mightn't contribute to their success to have some closer communication with him. The special circumstances would surely be held to have given me a right to introduce them. Corvick immediately replied that he had no wish to approach the altar before he had prepared the sacrifice. He quite agreed with our friend both as to the delight and as to the honor of the chase. He would bring down the animal with his own rifle. When I asked him if Miss Ermay were as keen a shot, he said after thinking, No, I'm ashamed to say she wants to set a trap. She'd give anything to see him. She says she requires another tip. She's really quite morbid about it. But she must play fair. She shan't see him, he emphatically added. I wondered if they hadn't even quarreled a little on the subject, a suspicion not corrected by the way he more than once exclaimed to me, She's quite incredibly literary, you know, quite fantastically. I remember his saying of her that she felt in italics and thought in capitals. Oh, when I've run him to earth, 
he also said, then you know I shall knock at his door. Rather, I beg you to believe, I'll have it from his own lips. Right you are, my boy, you've done it this time. He shall crown me victor with the critical laurel. Meanwhile, he really avoided the chances London life might have given him of meeting the distinguished novelist, a danger, however, that disappeared with Vereker's leaving England for an indefinite absence, as the newspapers announced, going to the South for motives connected with the health of his wife, which had long kept her in retirement. A year, more than a year, had elapsed since the incident at Bridges, but I had had no further sight of him. I think I was at bottom rather ashamed. I hated to remind him that, though I had irremediably missed his point, a reputation for acuteness was rapidly overtaking me. This scruple led me a dance, kept me out of Lady Jane's house, made me even decline, when in spite of my bad manners she was a second time so good as to make me a sign, an invitation to her beautiful seat. I once became aware of her under Vereker's escort at a concert, and was sure I was seen by them, but I slipped out without being caught. I felt, as on that occasion I splashed along in the rain, that I couldn't have done anything else, and yet I remember saying to myself that it was hard, was even cruel. Not only had I lost the books, but I had lost the man himself. They and their author had been alike spoiled for me. I knew, too, which was the loss I most regretted. I had taken to the man still more than I had ever taken to the books. Okay, that's the end of chapter five. Our plot is building. Corvick is the man for this job. Our narrator knows it, and he suspects that Corvick is going to figure it out. His love, Corvick's love, meanwhile, is also into it, but wants more of a hint, wants to see Vereker. But Corvick is denying her this, does not want the chance. He says only after he figures it out will he want to see him. The fun is going to be in the chase, in the intellectual pursuit, without hints. Okay, that's where we are. Back to the story. Chapter 6 Six months after our friend had left England, George Corvick, who made his living by his pen, contracted for a piece of work which imposed on him an absence of some length and a journey of some difficulty, and his undertaking of which was much of a surprise to me. His brother-in-law had become editor of a great provincial paper, and the great provincial paper, in a fine flight of fancy, had conceived the idea of sending a special commissioner to India. Special commissioners had begun, in the metropolitan press, to be the fashion, and the journal in question must have felt it had passed too long for a mere country cousin. Corvick had no hand, I knew, for the big brush of the correspondent, but that was his brother-in-law's affair and the fact that a particular task was not in his line was apt to be with himself exactly a reason for accepting it. He was prepared to out-Herod the metropolitan press. He took solemn precautions against priggishness. He exquisitely outraged taste. Nobody ever knew it. That offended principle was all his own. In addition to his expenses, he was to be conveniently paid and I found myself able to help him for the usual fat book 
to a plausible arrangement with the usual fat publisher. I naturally inferred that his obvious desire to make a little money was not unconnected with the prospect of a union with Gwendolyn Hermé. I was aware that her mother's opposition was largely addressed to his want of means and of lucrative abilities, but it so happened that on my saying the last time I saw him something that bore on the question of his separation from our young lady, he brought out with an emphasis that startled me, Ah, I'm not a bit engaged to her, you know. Not overtly, I answered, because her mother doesn't like you, but I've always taken for granted a private understanding. Well, there was one, but there isn't now. That was all he said, save something about Mrs. Hermes having got on her feet again in the most extraordinary way, a remark pointing, as I supposed, the moral that private understandings were of little use when the doctor didn't share them. What I took the liberty of more closely inferring was that the girl might in some way have estranged him. Well, if he had taken the turn of jealousy, for instance, it could scarcely be jealousy of me. In that case, over and above the absurdity of it, he wouldn't have gone away just to leave us together. For some time before his going, we had indulged in no allusion to the buried treasure, and from his silence, which my reserve simply emulated, I had drawn a sharp conclusion. His courage had dropped. His ardor had gone the way of mine. This appearance, at least, he left me to scan. More than that, he couldn't do. He couldn't face the triumph with which I might have greeted an explicit admission. He needn't have been afraid, poor dear, for I had by this time lost all need to triumph. In fact, I considered I showed magnanimity in not reproaching him with his collapse, for the sense of his having thrown up the game made me feel more than ever how much I at last depended on him. If Corvick had broken down, I should never know. No one would be of any use if he wasn't. It wasn't a bit true I had ceased to care for knowledge. Little by little my curiosity not only had begun to ache again, but had become the familiar torment of my days and my nights. There are doubtless people to whom torments of such an order appear hardly more natural than the contortions of disease, but I don't after all know why I should in this connection so much as mention them. For the few persons, at any rate, abnormal or not, with whom my anecdote is concerned, literature was a game of skill, and skill meant courage, and courage meant honor, and honor meant passion, meant life. The steak on the table was of a special substance, and our roulette the revolving mind. But we sat round the green board as intently as the grim gamblers at Monte Carlo. Gwendolyn Hermé, for that matter, with her white face and her fixed eyes, was of the very type of the lean ladies one had met in the temples of chance. I recognized in Corvick's absence that she made this analogy vivid. It was extravagant, I admit, the way she lived for the art of the pen. Her passion visibly preyed on her, and in her presence I felt almost tepid. 
I got hold of deep down again. It was a desert in which she had lost herself, but in which, too, she had dug a wonderful hole in the sand, a cavity out of which Corvick had still more remarkably pulled her. Early in March I had a telegram from her, in consequence of which I repaired immediately to Chelsea, where the first thing she said to me was, He has got it! He has got it! She was moved, as I could see, to such depths that she must mean the great thing. Vereker's idea? His general intention. George has cabled from Bombay. She had the missive open there. It was emphatic, though concise. Eureka! Immense! That was all. He had saved the cost of the signature. I shared her emotion, but I was disappointed. He doesn't say what it is. How could he, in a telegram? He'll write it. But how does he know? Know it's the real thing? Oh, I'm sure that when you see it, you do know. Vera incessu patuit dea. I'll interrupt there to say that's a line from Virgil that means the true goddess was revealed in her step. It's you, Miss Hermé, who are a dear for bringing me such news. I went all lengths in my high spirits. But fancy finding our goddess in the temple of Vishnu. How strange of George to have been able to go into the thing again in the midst of such different and such powerful solicitations. He hasn't gone into it, I know. It's the thing itself, let severely alone for six months, that has simply sprung out at him like a tigress out of the jungle. He didn't take a book with him, on purpose. Indeed, he wouldn't have needed to. He knows every page, as I do, by heart. They all worked in him together, and some day, somewhere, when he wasn't thinking, they fell in all their superb intricacy, into the one right combination. The figure in the carpet came out. That's the way he knew it would come. And the real reason, you didn't in the least understand, but I suppose I may tell you now why he went and why I consented to his going. We knew the change would do it, that the difference of thought, of scene, would give the needed touch the magic shake. We had perfectly, we had admirably calculated. The elements were all in his mind, and in the secousse of a new and intense experience, they just struck light. She positively struck light herself. She was literally, facially luminous. I stammered something about unconscious cerebration, and she continued, He'll come right home. This will bring him. To see Vereker, you mean? To see Vereker and to see me. Think what he'll have to tell me. I hesitated. About India? About fiddlesticks. About Vereker. About the figure in the carpet. But, as you say, we shall surely have that in a letter. She thought like one inspired, and I remembered how Corvick had told me long before that her face was interesting. Perhaps it can't be got into a letter if it's immense. Perhaps not if it's immense bosh. 
If he has hold of something that can't be got into a letter, he hasn't hold of the thing. Vereker's own statement to me was exactly that the figure would fit into a letter. Well, I cabled to George an hour ago. Two words, said Gwendolyn. Is it indiscreet of me to ask what they were? She hung fire, but at last brought them out. Angel, right. Good, I exclaimed. I'll make it sure. I'll send him the same. Okay, here we go. We're halfway through chapter-wise. That's the end of chapter six. And there are 11 chapters. Our narrator has rejoined the pursuit. His curiosity was rekindled until it raged. It became a torment once again. And then he hears from Miss or May Gwendolyn that George has it. Eureka! Immense was his cable. And now George is on his way back to reveal it, or he'll put it into a letter, one or the other. Whatever waned in his relationship has been restored. His paramour, Gwendolyn, cannot wait to hear what it is. Angel, right. She telegraphs him, and the narrator sends the same or a similar message. So, let's go back to the book. Chapter 7. My words, however, were not absolutely the same. I put something instead of angel, and in the sequel my epithet seemed the more apt, for when eventually we heard from our traveler, it was merely, it was thoroughly to be tantalized. He was magnificent in his triumph. He described his discovery as stupendous, but his ecstasy only obscured it. There were to be no particulars till he should have submitted his conception to the supreme authority. He had thrown up his commission, he had thrown up his book, he had thrown up everything but the instant need to hurry to Rapallo on the Genoese shore where Vereker was making a stay. I wrote him a letter which was to await him at Aden. I besought him to relieve my suspense. That he had found my letter was indicated by a telegram which, reaching me after weary days and in the absence of any answer to my laconic dispatch to him at Bombay, was evidently intended as a reply to both communications. Those few words were in familiar French, the French of the day, which Kovic often made use of to show he wasn't a prig. It had, for some persons, the opposite effect— but his message may fairly be paraphrased. Have patience. I want to see, as it breaks on you, the face you'll make. Telemont, envie de voir ta tête. That was what I had to sit down with. I can certainly not be said to have sat down, for I seem to remember myself at this time as rattling constantly between the little house in Chelsea and my own. Our impatience, Gwendolyn's and mine, was equal, but I kept hoping her light would be greater. We all spent during this episode, for people of our means, a great deal of money in telegrams and cabs, and I counted on the receipt of news from Rapallo immediately after the junction of the discoverer with the discovered. The interval seemed an age, but late one day I heard a hansom precipitated to my door with the crash engendered by a hint of liberality. I lived with my heart in my mouth and accordingly bounded to the window, a movement 
which gave me a view of a young lady erect on the footboard of the vehicle and eagerly looking up at my house. At sight of me, she flourished a paper with a movement that brought me straight down, the movement with which, in melodramas, handkerchiefs, and reprieves are flourished at the foot of the scaffold. Just seen Vereker, not a note wrong, pressed me to bosom, keeps me a month. So much I read on her paper while the cabbie dropped a grin from his perch. In my excitement, I paid him profusely, and in hers, she suffered it. Then, as he drove away, we started to walk about and talk. We had talked, heaven knows, enough before, but this was a wondrous lift. We pictured the whole scene at Rapallo, where he would have written, mentioning my name for permission to call. That is, I pictured it, having more material than my companion, whom I felt hang on my lips as we stopped on purpose before shop windows we didn't look into. About one thing we were clear. If he was staying on for fuller communication, we should at least have a letter from him that would help us through the dregs of delay. We understood his staying on, and yet each of us saw, I think, that the other hated it. The letter we were clear about arrived. It was for Gwendolyn, and I called on her in time to save her the trouble of bringing it to me. She didn't read it out, as was natural enough, but she repeated to me what it chiefly embodied. This consisted of the remarkable statement that he'd tell her after they were married exactly what she wanted to know. Only then, when I'm his wife, not before, she explained, it's tantamount to saying, isn't it, that I must marry him straight off. She smiled at me while I flushed with disappointment, a vision of fresh delay that made me at first unconscious of my surprise. It seemed more than a hint that on me as well he would impose some tiresome condition. Suddenly, while she reported several more things from his letter, I remembered what he had told me before going away. He had found Mr. Vereker deliriously interesting, and his own possession of the secret a real intoxication— the buried treasure was all gold and gems. Now that it was there, it seemed to grow and grow before him. It would have been, through all time and taking all tongues, one of the most wonderful flowers of literary art. Nothing, in especial, once you were face to face with it, could show for more consummately done. When once it came out, it came out, was there with a splendor that made you ashamed, and there hadn't been save in the bottomless vulgarity of the age, with everyone tasteless and tainted, every sense stopped, the smallest reason why it should have been overlooked. It was great, yet so simple, was simple, yet so great, and the final knowledge of it was an experience quite apart. He intimated that the charm of such an experience, the desire to drain it in its freshness to the last drop, was what kept him there close to the source. Gwendolen, frankly radiant as she tossed me these fragments, showed the elation of a prospect more assured than my own. That brought me back to the question of her marriage, prompted me to ask if what she meant by what she had just surprised me with was that she was under an engagement. Of course I am, she answered. Didn't you know it? She seemed astonished, but I was still more so, for Corvick had told me the exact contrary. 
I didn't mention this, however. I only reminded her how little I had been on that score in her confidence, or even in Corvix, and that, moreover, I wasn't in ignorance of her mother's interdict. At bottom, I was troubled by the disparity of the two accounts, but after a little I felt Corvix to be the one I least doubted. This simply reduced me to asking myself if the girl had on the spot improvised an engagement, vamped up an old one or dashed off a new, in order to arrive at the satisfaction she desired. She must have had resources of which I was destitute, but she made her case slightly more intelligible by returning presently, What the state of things has been is that we felt, of course, bound to do nothing in Mama's lifetime. But now you think you'll just dispense with Mama's consent? Ah, it mayn't come to that. I wondered what it might come to, and she went on, Poor dear, she may swallow the dose. In fact, you know, she added with a laugh, she really must. A proposition of which, on behalf of everyone concerned, I fully acknowledged the force. Okay, let's pause here. That's the end of chapter seven. Corvick knows, or at least he has announced that he knows. The secret is extraordinary, one of literature's greatest treasures. Vereker has acknowledged that Corvick has got it, and the two are in deep communion with one another, staying together a month. Gwendolyn and the narrator, meanwhile, are sharing their giddy anticipation of learning what it is. This is more than literature now. Literature is a skill, which is courage, which is passion, which... What is the quote? Here's the... I bungled that. Here's the quote. Literature was a game of skill, and skill meant courage, and courage meant honor, and honor meant passion, meant life. Secrets of the universe are bound up in this, it seems. And George... We don't know when he's going to tell the narrator. We know he's going to tell he's going to tell Gwendolyn, but only after they're married, not before. So, maybe we'll take a break here before rolling out a few theories as to what we think this might be at this point in the story. What do you think, dear listener? Do you have any theories for what it is? I've got a few which I will share with you after this. Night Racing is back at Richmond Raceway. This spring, top NASCAR drivers like Ryan Blaney, Chase Elliott, Bubba Wallace, Ross Chastain, and Virginia's own Denny Hamlin will battle under the bright lights. And this historic track also offers a rocking infield experience with unparalleled access to your favorite drivers and one of the best tailgate scenes around. For a weekend of friends, family, and amazing short track action, head to Richmond Raceway, March 29th through 31st. Get tickets now at richmondraceway.com. And we are back. We have now read seven chapters of The Figure in the Carpet. Corvick has figured out what the figure is. It's real and it's spectacular. He won't tell Gwendolyn until they're married, which to my mind raises a question that's kind of been hovering over this all along. Does the secret have something to do with relationships and with physical relationships in particular? Remember, we got that hint right away, right? When Hugh Vereker 
had said, oh, there's two people and they're getting married. Maybe they'll figure it out together, but we must give them time. And now Corvick says he'll tell Gwendolyn, but only after they're married. So does it have something to do with physical relate? Is it possible that Corvick doesn't want to tell Gwendolyn until the two of them are close and intimate. Presumably, they have not yet had sex. Is there something that he doesn't want to tell her until the two of them have consummated their relationship? Maybe because he's embarrassed. Maybe because he thinks she won't understand. Maybe because he thinks it will be a conversation to deepen their relationship as husband and wife. I don't think James is so clunky as to say that this secret is about how great sex is, the physical pleasure of it, but he might view it as the secret is giving yourself over to someone else thoroughly and completely, mind and body, heart and soul. The act of losing yourself in spiritual ways, in emotional ways, in physical ways as typified or represented in the act of sexual intercourse where you meld with your partner is a secret that carries through in Hugh Vereker's literature. Mm -hmm. We also know, of course, that James had something similar to this idea in The Beast in the Jungle. The idea that you can wait your whole life for something extraordinary to occur and in doing so, miss out on the chance to have an extraordinary life that seemed ordinary enough but could have been extraordinary. What is that waiting out? What is that waiting out, which we saw in The Beast in the Jungle, which James wrote later? Is it James's closeted self? Perhaps a gay self, the self that he perhaps felt but never let emerge what he's blocked somehow, repressed, unable to let himself feel as deeply as he, great reader and observer that he was, knew that other people were feeling all around him, but that he himself didn't let himself feel. Maybe that desire, which maybe he felt so powerfully because he didn't let himself act upon it, maybe that squelched but still powerful desire suffused his work and made it so mysterious, book after book after book. Maybe he saw that in his own works, no matter what they were about. Maybe he saw that in all of his books, what he was saying is, I have not let myself love, and I am longing to do so. Line after line, page after page, Volume after volume, he writes about other things, and the critics miss his point. They talk plots and characters and style and say what a great master he is. And James thinks, does nobody see? Does nobody see this cry for help, this urging that you should not do as I do, that you should let yourself escape from yourself, let yourself go, not live this bottled-up life that I have lived? That's plausible, I think. It's plausible. And let me tell you something else that might be relevant here. This was written, the story, in 1896. In 1895, something very important in James's biography occurred. He suffered the biggest humiliation of his life. 
He was still reeling from the deaths of his sister Alice in 1892, and in particular, the death of Constance Fenimore Wilson in 1894. We have covered that in great detail in many episodes, her probable suicide and how it affected him. In some ways, she was the love of his life, and he was spooked, let's say, by his feelings for her, and then grief-stricken and subdued. He didn't do right by her, he felt. He had failed as a friend and as a human being. Now, if he was wrestling with his sexuality, we know he might not have had the right tools to figure out what he was supposed to do with respect to her. I'm not really going to blame him because we we just don't know enough about what was in his head whether he loved her, whether he wanted to love her and couldn't, and this was not an easy time to be gay if that's what this was about. I'm not going to blame him, but he seems to have blamed himself for whatever reason. Her suicide tore him apart. And then the following year, he came out with a play called Guy Domville, and it was a disaster. The worst humiliation of his life. And he was someone accustomed to success. He grew up in privilege. His father was very wealthy. He himself was brilliant and viewed that way. His books were critical darlings. He was generally acknowledged in his lifetime as a supremely intelligent and gifted novelist, as good as it was possible for a novelist to be. The kind of writer that other writers paid tribute to, genuflected before, treated with even more veneration than what Hugh Vereker receives from the narrator. And yet, and yet, his play Guy Domville comes out, and it's a huge flop. On opening night, James took the stage after the play was over and tried to bow, tried to take a little, a little applause, a little, a little praise for himself to bask in the glow of the play's opening night success as its author and the audience let him have it. It was an unmitigated disaster, he wrote in a letter, hooted at, as I was hooted at myself by a brutal mob and fruitless of any of the consequences for which I have striven. The experience, he said, has completely sickened me with the theater and made me feel at any rate for the present like washing my hands of it forever. Now, let's imagine for a moment that feeling out of touch with your body, the sexual side of yourself, is one of the potential mysteries that could carry through from book to book. That could be the figure in your carpet. Maybe that feeling of not having sex, of limiting yourself, of being blocked, not just from having an orgasm, but from being in close physical communion with another. Let's say that's what's on James's mind. Well, guess what else happened that night of his great failure? He, in fact, didn't even go to see his own play, which might be why he thought he could take the stage afterward. He hadn't realized that it had been a failure because he didn't watch it along with the audience. He just turned up at the end, where the audience hooted at him. <laughs> Too nervous to attend opening night, he went instead to a play by Oscar Wilde, who was in the middle of his glorious run of theatrical successes, and who uh, James hated. He hated the plays, he hated Wilde. He thought Wilde's plays were bad. 
Here's his description to his brother, William, where he talked about Guy Domville, which uh, this is a little bit later. It was about to close after a month. And Henry writes to his brother, William, quote, The poor little play seems already, thank God, ancient history, though I have lived through, in its company, the horridest four weeks of my life. Produce a play and you will know better than I can tell you how such an ordeal, odious in its essence, is only made tolerable and palatable by great success, and in how many ways, accordingly, non-success may be tormenting and tragic, a bitterness of every hour, ramifying into every throb of one's consciousness." Tonight the thing will have lived the whole of its troubled little life of 31 performances and will be taken off, to be followed on February 5th by a piece by Oscar Wilde that will have probably a very different fate. On the night of January 5th, too nervous to do anything else, I had the ingenious thought of going to some other theater and seeing some other play as a means of being coerced into quietness from 8 till 1045. I went accordingly to the Haymarket, to a new piece by the said O.W. that had just been produced, An Ideal Husband. I sat through it and saw it played with every appearance, so far as the crowded house was an appearance, of complete success, and that gave me the most fearful apprehension. The thing seemed to me so helpless, so crude, so bad, so clumsy, feeble, and vulgar that as I walked away across St. James's Square to learn my own fate, the prosperity of what I had seen seemed to me to constitute a dreadful presumption of this shipwreck of Guy Domville. And I stopped in the middle of the square, paralyzed by the terror of this probability, afraid to go on and learn more. How can my piece do anything with a public with whom that is a success? It couldn't. But even then, the full truth was, mercifully, not revealed to me, the truth that in a short month, my peace would be whisked away to make room for the triumphant Oscar. End quote. You see, you see how Oscar Wilde lives in James's mind rent-free. The vulgar, the crude, the clumsy and vulgar and feeble and crude and bad playwright Oscar Wilde. What's so vulgar about Oscar Wilde? Well, I think he's talking about the play being simple and straightforward, a single idea not as elaborate in technique as his own play, Guy Domville. He talks about this later in the letter, how hard he worked only to realize that the theater-going audience was a vast English Philistine mob. They couldn't appreciate it. Newspaper men got it wrong, too. The critics missed it. But what is going on with his conception of Oscar? What's so vulgar about Oscar? Well, I'm speculating, but I wonder if James might have thought that Wilde, with his flamboyance, his aesthetic persona, his already well-known dalliances with young men, if there might have been something that particularly resounded within James there. I'm the subtle artist. This guy is bold. He's popular. I'm not. He's letting himself live in a way that makes me recoil. 
I find it vulgar, but the side of me that finds it vulgar might be the side that's preventing me from being my truest self. All that is total speculation on my part, but I'm looking for something that would rise to the level of what Hugh Vereker was putting into his books. It's something grand, don't you think? It's faith or courage or empathy, something big on a big scale. Living your true life seems to me like it could be on that level. And it also seems to be one of the themes that we see recurring in James's works. Maybe something that could infect the works that even appear to be about something else. After the play, James wrote in his journal, I take up my own old pen again, the pen of all my old unforgettable efforts and sacred struggles. To myself, today, I need say no more. Large and full and high, the future still opens. It is now indeed that I, I may do the work of my life, and I will. End quote. And one of the first things he wrote as he talks about doing the work of his life One of the first things he wrote, if not the very first thing, was this story, The Figure in the Carpet. He came out of that failure determined to succeed. And what was on his mind was what he put into The Figure in the Carpet. Had he realized I'm not Oscar Wilde and my anti-Oscar Wilde side runs like a secret through all my works, and you've all just been too dense to miss it? Well, or you've been so dense that you've missed it, maybe I should say. Well, that's a theory. That's a theory, but we still have more to read so we can see if the old master gives us any more clues. The other great theory, well, one other might be one Borges hinted at, which is, this is about the search for God, the search for meaning, in a meaningless universe. And the other great theory, which might be connected to Borges, is that this is all a hoax. There's no figure. And what we will learn is that there's no such thing. The secret is that there is no secret. That would be a very literary turn. That wouldn't surprise me too much if that's what we hear. But let's get back to the story and see what it says. Chapter 8. Nothing more vexatious had ever happened to me than to become aware before Corvick's arrival in England that I shouldn't be there to put him through. I found myself abruptly called to Germany by the alarming illness of my younger brother, who, against my advice, had gone to Munich to study, at the feet indeed of a great master, the art of portraiture in oils. The near relative who made him an allowance had threatened to withdraw it if he should, under specious pretexts, turn for superior truth to Paris. Paris being somehow, for a Cheltenham aunt, the school of evil, the abyss. I deplored this prejudice at the time, and the deep injury of it was now visible, first in the fact that it hadn't saved the poor boy, who was clever, frail, and foolish, from congestion of the lungs and second, in the greater break with London to which the event condemned me. I'm afraid that what was uppermost in my mind during several anxious weeks was the sense that if we had only been in Paris, I might have run over to see Corvick. This was actually out of the question from every point of view. My brother, 
whose recovery gave us both plenty to do, was ill for three months, during which I never left him, and at the end of which we had to face the absolute prohibition of a return to England. The consideration of climate imposed itself, and he was in no state to meet it alone. I took him to Moran and there spent the summer with him, trying to show him by example how to get back to work and nursing a rage of another sort that I tried not to show him. The whole business proved the first of a series of phenomena so strangely interlaced that, taken together, which was how I had to take them, they form as good an illustration as I can recall of the manner in which for the good of his soul, doubtless, fate sometimes deals with a man's avidity. These incidents certainly had larger bearings than the comparatively meager consequence we are here concerned with, though I feel that consequence also a thing to speak of with some respect. It's mainly in such a light, I confess, at any rate, that the ugly fruit of my exile is at this hour present to me. Even at first, indeed, the spirit in which my avidity, as I have called it, made me regard that term, owed no element of ease to the fact that before coming back from Rapallo, George Corvick addressed me in a way I objected to. His letter had none of the sedative action I must today profess myself sure he had wished to give it, and the march of occurrences was not so ordered as to make up for what it lacked. He had begun on the spot for one of the quarterlies, a great last word on Vereker's writings. And this exhaustive study, the only one that would have counted, have existed, was to turn on the new light, to utter, oh, so quietly, the unimagined truth. It was, in other words, to trace the figure in the carpet through every convolution, to reproduce it in every tint. The result according to my friend, would be the greatest literary portrait ever painted, and what he asked of me was just to be so good as not to trouble him with questions till he should hang up his masterpiece before me. He did me the honor to declare that, putting aside the great sitter himself, all aloft in his indifference, I was individually the connoisseur he was most working for. I was therefore to be a good boy, and not try to peep under the curtain before the show was ready. I should enjoy it all the more if I sat very still. I did my best to sit very still, but I couldn't help giving a jump on seeing in the Times, after I had been a week or two in Munich, and before, as I knew, Corvick had reached London, the announcement of the sudden death of poor Mrs. Hermé. I instantly, by letter, appealed to Gwendolen for particulars, and she wrote me that her mother had yielded to long-threatened failure of the heart. She didn't say, but I took the liberty of reading into her words, that from the point of view of her marriage and also of her eagerness, which was quite a match for mine, this was a solution more prompt than could have been expected, and more radical than waiting for the old lady to swallow the dose." I candidly admit indeed that at the time, for I heard from her repeatedly, I read some singular things into Gwendolen's words and some still more extraordinary ones into her silences. Pen in hand, this way I live the time over, and it brings back the oddest sense of my having been, both for months and in spite of myself, a kind of coerced spectator 
All my life had taken refuge in my eyes, which the procession of events appeared to have committed itself to keep a stare. There were days when I thought of writing to Hugh Vereker and simply throwing myself on his charity. But I felt more deeply that I hadn't fallen quite so low, besides which, quite properly, he would send me about my business. Mrs. Hermes' death brought Corvick straight home, and within the month he was united very quietly, as quietly I seemed to make out as he meant in his article to bring out his trouvé, his lucky find, to the young lady he had loved and quitted. I use this last term, I may parenthetically say, because I subsequently grew sure that at the time he went to India, at the time of his great news from Bombay, there had been no positive pledge between them, whatever. There had been none at the moment she was affirming to me the very opposite. On the other hand, he had certainly become engaged the day he returned. The happy pair went down to Torquay for their honeymoon, and there, in a reckless hour, it occurred to poor Corvick to take his young bride a drive. He had no command of that business. This had been brought home to me of old in a little tour we had once made together in a dog cart. In a dog cart, he perched his companion for a rattle over Devonshire Hills, on one of the likeliest of which he brought his horse, who, it was true, had bolted, down with such violence that the occupants of the cart were hurled forward and that he fell horribly on his head. He was killed on the spot. Gwendolen escaped unhurt. I pass rapidly over the question of this unmitigated tragedy, of what the loss of my best friend meant for me, and I complete my little history of my patience and my pain by the frank statement of my having, in a postscript to my very first letter to her after the receipt of the hideous news, asked Mrs. Corvick whether her husband mightn't at least have finished the great article on Vereker. Her answer was as prompt as my question. The article— which had been barely begun, was a mere heartbreaking scrap. She explained that our friend abroad had just settled down to it when interrupted by her mother's death, and that then, on his return, he had been kept from work by the engrossments into which that calamity was to plunge them. The opening pages were all that existed. They were striking, they were promising, but they didn't unveil the idol. That great intellectual feat was obviously to have formed his climax. She said nothing more, nothing to enlighten me as to the state of her own knowledge, the knowledge for the acquisition of which I had fancied her prodigiously acting. This was above all what I wanted to know. Had she seen the idol unveiled? Had there been a private ceremony for a palpitating audience of one? For what else but that ceremony had the nuptials taken place? I didn't like as yet to press her, though when I thought of what had passed between us on the subject in Corvick's absence, her reticence surprised me. It was therefore not till much later from Moran that I risked another appeal, risked it in some trepidation, for she continued to tell me nothing. Did you hear in those few days of your blighted bliss I wrote, what we desired so to hear. I said we as a little hint, and she showed me she could take a little hint. I heard everything, she replied, 
and I mean to keep it to myself. Okay. It's the end of the chapter. <laughs> A lot in that one. The plot thickens. Corvick knows the secret. The narrator is desperate to hear it, of course, as are we. Corvick starts writing the book and says, please don't pester me, narrator. It's all coming out in my book. Don't ask any questions. And then Gwendolyn's mother dies, which finally opens the door to a marriage between Corvick and Gwendolyn, which has always been the barrier to his sharing the secret with her. So thanks to the death of the mother, Corvick is free to marry Gwendolyn and share the secret with her. And then he's killed suddenly. The narrator passes right over it. <laughs> I got a bigger story to tell. Sorry, my friend died. I passed over this quickly. And she said, he's, <laughs> and he also does that with her, with Gwendolyn. He says, okay, my condolences. By the way, <laughs> did he write the book? She says he didn't finish it. It's just a heartbreaking scrap showing promise, but showing promise, but he didn't unveil the idol. And the narrator says, well, did he ever tell you? And she says at the end of the chapter, yes, he told me everything, and I mean to keep it to myself. End chapter. Wow. Okay, here's, here's where I wondered if this might become a murder mystery. If you were the narrator, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want to point a gun at her and say, tell me everything now? Why would she keep it from the poor narrator? out of loyalty toward her deceased husband? Is it something that simply cannot be told without putting it into a book? Or is it something that can't be shared unless you glean it for yourself or you can share it with a loved one? Is it is it something sacred or something profane? So, since we have no more breaks to take, let's take a look at something else that I collected along the way. This is a paragraph from the online publication The Ringer, an essay that's talking about Steven Spielberg's recent movie, The Fablemans, which I haven't seen. But it talks. the review talks about something very close to what we have here, a 50-year career, movies we've all watched one by one, without seeing necessarily a larger pattern underneath them. And the movie The Fablemans according to this critic, will help you see the figure in the Spielbergian carpet. Here's the quote. Quote, And then there's Steven Spielberg. For more than 50 years, critics and fans have pored over his work, noting the recurrent themes of absent fathers, community dissolution, and familial reunification. And unlike many of his peers, Spielberg has been eager to help. Watch just a few of his interviews, and you'll quickly learn the story of his childhood. His father was a computer engineer who moved his family around a lot, and he initiated a divorce that the young filmmaker later learned was actually due to his mother falling in love with his father's best friend. Spielberg's openness about these events has been a gift to armchair psychologists who could then watch a popcorn flick like Jurassic Park, War of the Worlds, or Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and feel like they understood something about the filmmaker, the art, and the perpetual adolescence in a 20th century American male. When the director, often accused of having a Peter Pan complex, makes an actual Peter Pan movie, he makes it pretty clear that he's uninterested in running from his demons. With the Fablemans, 
a lightly fictionalized memoir of his childhood, Spielberg has literalized the story that has been etched into the background of almost every one of his films. For him, it's $40 million of therapy. For us, it's a skeleton key into his entire filmography. End quote. There we go. The figure in the carpet exists. It can be real. Well, what is it for James? What's the skeleton key? A life not lived? A search for God? Gay relationships or inclinations that are stifled? A belief in art and what it should be? Or an attack on commercial writers and or Oscar Wilde? Is it something about the style? Are we ever going to know? And what is the figure in the carpet for Hugh Vereker? Will our narrator ever find out? We still have a few chapters. Let's see what happens. Chapter 9. It was impossible not to be moved with the strongest sympathy for her, and on my return to England, I showed her every kindness in my power. Her mother's death had made her means sufficient, and she had gone to live in a more convenient quarter. But her loss had been great, and her visitation cruel. It never would have occurred to me, moreover, to suppose she could come to feel the possession of a technical tip, of a piece of literary experience, a counterpoise to her grief. Strange to say, nonetheless, I couldn't help believing, after I had seen her a few times, that I caught a glimpse of some such oddity. I hasten to add that there had been other things I couldn't help believing, or at least imagining, and as I never felt I was really clear about these, so, as to the point I here touch on, I give her memory the benefit of the doubt. Stricken and solitary, highly accomplished, and now, in her deep mourning, her maturer grace and her uncomplaining sorrow, incontestably handsome, she presented herself as leading a life of singular dignity and beauty." I had at first found a way to persuade myself that I should soon get the better of the reserve formulated the week after the catastrophe in her reply to an appeal as to which I was not unconscious that it might strike her as mistimed. Certainly that reserve was something of a shock to me. Certainly it puzzled me the more I thought of it, and even though I tried to explain it, with moments of success, by an imputation of exalted sentiments of superstitious scruples, of a refinement of loyalty. Certainly it added at the same time hugely to the price of Vereker's secret, precious as this mystery already appeared. I may as well confess abjectly that Mrs. Corvick's unexpected attitude was the final tap on the nail that was to fix fast my luckless idea convert it into the obsession of which I'm forever conscious. But this only helped me the more to be artful, to be adroit, to allow time to elapse before renewing my suit. There were plenty of speculations for the interval, and one of them was deeply absorbing. Corvick had kept his information from his young friend till after the removal of the last barrier to their intimacy. Then only had he let the cat out of the bag. Was it Gwendolyn's idea, taking a hint from him, to liberate this animal only on the basis of the renewal of such a relation? Was the figure in the carpet traceable or describable only for husbands and wives, 
for lovers supremely united, it came back to me in a mystifying manner that in Kensington Square, when I mentioned that Corvick would have told the girl he loved, some word had dropped from Vereker that gave color to this possibility. There might be little in it, but there was enough to make me wonder if I should have to marry Mrs. Corvick to get what I wanted. Was I prepared to offer her this price for the blessing of her knowledge? Ah, that way madness lay. So I at least said to myself, in bewildered hours, I could see, meanwhile, the torch she refused to pass on, flame away in her chamber of memory, pour through her eyes a light that shone in her lonely house. At the end of six months, I was fully sure of what this warm presence made up to her for. We had talked again and again of the man who had brought us together, of his talent, his character, his personal charm, his certain career, his dreadful doom, and even of his clear purpose in that great study, which was to have been a supreme literary portrait, a kind of critical Van Dyke or Velasquez. She had conveyed to me in abundance that she was tongue-tied by her perversity, by her piety, that she would never break the silence it had not been given to the right person, as she said, to break. The hour, however, finally arrived. One evening, when I had been sitting with her longer than usual, I laid my hand firmly on her arm. Now, at last, what is it? She had been expecting me and was ready. She gave a long, slow, soundless headshake, merciful only in being inarticulate. This mercy didn't prevent its hurling at me the largest, finest, coldest never I had yet, in the course of a life that had known denials, had to take full in the face. I took it, and was aware that with the hard blow, the Tears had come into my eyes. So for a while we sat and looked at each other, after which I slowly rose. I was wondering if some day she would accept me, but this was not what I brought out. I said as I smoothed down my hat, I know what to think then. It's nothing. A remote disdainful pity for me gathered in her dim smile. Then she spoke in a voice that I hear at this hour. It's my life! As I stood at the door, she added, You've insulted him! Do you mean Vereker? I mean the dead! I recognized when I reached the street the justice of her charge. Yes, it was her life. I recognized that too, but her life nonetheless made room with the lapse of time for another interest. A year and a half after Corvick's death, she published in a single volume her second novel, Overmastered, which I pounced on in the hope of finding in it some telltale echo or some peeping face. All I found was a much better book than her younger performance, showing I thought the better company she had kept. As a tissue tolerably intricate, it was a carpet with a figure of its own. But the figure was not the figure I was looking for. On sending a review of it to the middle, I was surprised to learn from the office that a notice was already in type. 
When the paper came out, I had no hesitation in attributing this article, which I thought rather vulgarly overdone, to Drayton Dean, who in the old days had been something of a friend of Corvick's, yet had only within a few weeks made the acquaintance of his widow. I had had an early copy of the book, but Dean had evidently had an earlier. He lacked all the same the light hand with which Corvick had gilded the gingerbread. He laid on the tinsel in splotches. Chapter 10 Six months later appeared the right of way, the last chance, though we didn't know it, that we were to have to redeem ourselves. Written wholly during Vereker's sojourn abroad, the book had been heralded in a hundred paragraphs by the usual ineptitudes. I carried it as early a copy as any, I this time flattered myself, straightway to Mrs. Corvick. This was the only use I had for it. I left the inevitable tribute of the middle to some more ingenious mind and some less irritated temper. But I already have it, Gwendolen said. Drayton Dean was so good as to bring it to me yesterday, and I've just finished it. Yesterday? How did he get it so soon? He gets everything so soon. He's to review it in the middle. He? Drayton Dean? Review Vereker? I couldn't believe my ears. Why not? One fine ignorance is as good as another. I winced, but I presently said, You ought to review him yourself. I don't review, she laughed. I'm reviewed. Just then the door was thrown open. Ah, yes, here's your reviewer. Drayton Dean was there with his long legs and his tall forehead. He had come to see what she thought of the right-of-way and to bring news that was singularly relevant. The evening papers were just out with a telegram on the author of that work, who, in Rome, had been ill for some days with an attack of malarial fever. It had at first not been thought grave, but had taken, in consequence of complications, a turn that might give rise to anxiety. Anxiety had indeed at the latest hour begun to be felt. I was struck in the presence of these tidings with the fundamental detachment that Mrs. Corvick's overt concern quite failed to hide. It gave me the measure of her consummate independence. That independence rested on her knowledge, the knowledge which nothing now could destroy and which nothing could make different. The figure in the carpet might take on another twist or two, but the sentence had virtually been written. The writer might go down to his grave. She was the person in the world to whom, as if she had been his favored heir, his continued existence was least of a need. This reminded me how I had observed at a particular moment after Corvick's death the drop of her desire to see him face to face. She had got what she wanted without that. I had been sure that if she hadn't got it, she wouldn't have been restrained from the endeavor to sound him personally by those superior reflections, more conceivable on a man's part than on a woman's, which in my case had served as a deterrent. It wasn't, however, I hasten to add, that my case, in, sp in spite of this invidious comparison, wasn't ambiguous enough. At the thought that Vereker was perhaps at that moment dying, there rolled over me a wave of anguish, a poignant sense of how inconsistently I still depended on him, a delicacy that it was my one compensation to suffer to rule me had left the Alps and the Apennines between us. 
but the sense of the waning occasion suggested that I might in my despair at last have gone to him. Of course, I should really have done nothing of the sort. I remained five minutes while my companions talked of the new book, and when Drayton Dean appealed to me for my opinion of it, I made answer, getting up, that I detested Hugh Vereker and simply couldn't read him. I departed with the moral certainty that as the door closed behind me, Dean would brand me for awfully superficial. His hostess wouldn't contradict that, at least. I continued to trace with a briefer touch our intensely odd successions. Three weeks after this came Vereker's death, and before the year was out, the death of his wife, that poor lady I had never seen. But I had a futile theory that, should she survive him long enough to be decorously accessible, I might approach her with the feeble flicker of my plea. Did she know? And if she knew, would she speak? It was much to be presumed that for more reasons than one she would have nothing to say. But when she passed out of all reach, I felt renouncement indeed my appointed lot. I was shut up in my obsession forever. My jailers had gone off with the key. I find myself quite as vague as a captive in a dungeon about the tinge that further elapsed before Mrs. Corvick became the wife of Drayton Dean. I had foreseen through my bars this end of the business, though there was no indecent haste and our friendship had fallen rather off. They were both so awfully intellectual that it struck people as a suitable match, but I had measured better than anyone the wealth of understanding the bride would contribute to the union. Never for a marriage in literary circles, so the newspapers described the alliance, had a lady been so bravely dowered. I began with due promptness to look for the fruit of the affair, that fruit, I mean, of which the premonitory symptoms would be peculiarly visible in the husband. Taking for granted the splendor of the other party's nuptial gift, I expected to see him make a show commensurate with his increase of means. I knew what his means had been. His article on the right way had distinctly given one the figure. As he was now exactly in the position in which, still more exactly, I was not, I watched from month to month in the likely periodicals for the heavy message poor Corvick had been unable to deliver and the responsibility of which would have fallen on his successor. The widow and wife would have broken by the rekindled hearth, the silence that only a widow and wife might break, and Dean would be as aflame with the knowledge as Corvick in his own hour, as Gwendolyn in hers had been. Well, he was aflame, doubtless, but the fire was apparently not to become a public blaze. I scanned the periodicals in vain. Drayton Dean filled them with exuberant pages, but he withheld the page I most feverishly sought. He wrote on a thousand subjects, but never on the subject of Vereker. His special line was to tell truths that other people either funked, as he said, or overlooked— but he never told the only truth that seemed to me in these days to signify. I met the couple in those literary circles referred to in the papers. I have sufficiently intimated that it was only in such circles we were all constructed to revolve. 
Gwendolyn was more than ever committed to them by the publication of her third novel, and I myself definitely classed by holding the opinion that this work was inferior to its immediate predecessor. Was it worse because she had been keeping worse company? If her secret was, as she had told me, her life, a fact discernible in her increasing bloom, an air of conscious privilege that, cleverly corrected by pretty charities, gave distinction to her appearance, it had yet not a direct influence on her work. That only made one, everything only made one yearn the more for it, only rounded it off with a mystery finer and subtler. Okay. That's the end of chapter 10. We have one chapter left, dear listener. My heart is pounding our poor narrator. We know this is a secret. It maybe can only be passed from husband to wife. Corvick knew it, but died. Vericker himself dies. Mrs. Corvick, Gwendolyn, had it passed to her. She's refused to tell our narrator. Our narrator thinks at one moment, maybe I have to marry her to find out, but it doesn't happen. And now she's married to the loutish reviewer, Drayton Dean, who must have it, but he doesn't reveal it. Our narrator reads all of Drayton Dean's reviews, trying to catch glimpses of it, which are not there. Gwendolyn won't speak of it or write about it because she's reviewed. She's not a reviewer and her novels don't seem to show a trace of it. But she did say it was her life, whatever that means. And now our narrator cannot leave it alone. So, I revealed at the beginning of episode one of this two-part episode that I admired how James lands the plane. What if there's nothing here? What does that mean? But how can a figure possibly live up to the hype? We have been building for 10 chapters. What's going to happen in the 11th? Well, let's get back to the story. Chapter 11. It was therefore from her husband I could never remove my eyes. I beset him in a manner that might have made him uneasy. I went even so far as to engage him in conversation. Didn't he know? Hadn't he come into it as a matter of course? That question hummed in my brain. Of course he knew, otherwise he wouldn't return my stare so queerly. His wife had told him what I wanted, and he was amiably amused at my impotence. He didn't laugh. He wasn't a laugher. His system was to present to my irritation so that I should crudely expose myself, a conversational blank as vast as his big bare brow. It always happened that I turned away with a settled conviction from these unpeopled expanses, which seemed to complete each other geographically and to symbolize together Drayton Dean's want of voice, want of form. He simply hadn't the art to use what he knew. He literally was incompetent to take up the duty where Corvick had left it. I went still further. It was the only glimpse of happiness I had. I made up my mind that the duty didn't appeal to him. He wasn't interested. He didn't care. Yes, it quite comforted me to believe him too stupid to have joy of the thing I lacked. He was as stupid after as he had been before. And that deepened for me the golden glory in which the mystery was wrapped. I had, of course, nonetheless to recollect 
that his wife might have imposed her conditions and exactions. I had above all to remind myself that with Vereker's death, the major incentive dropped. He was still there to be honored by what might be done. He was no longer there to give it his sanction. Who, alas, but he had the authority? Two children were born to the pair, but the second cost the mother her life. After this stroke, I seemed to see another ghost of a chance. I jumped at it in thought, but I waited a certain time for manners. And at last my opportunity arrived in a remunerative way. His wife had been dead a year when I met Drayton Dean in the smoking room of a small club of which we both were members, but where for months, perhaps because I rarely entered it, I hadn't seen him. The room was empty and the occasion propitious. I deliberately offered him to have done with the matter forever, that advantage for which I felt he had long been looking. As an older acquaintance of your late wife's than even you were, I began, you must let me say to you something I have on my mind. I shall be glad to make any terms with you that you see fit to name for the information she must have had from George Corvick, the information, you know, that had come to him, poor chap, in one of the happiest hours of his life, straight from Hugh Vereker. He looked at me like a dim phrenological bust. The information? Vereker's secret, my dear man, the general intention of his books, the string the pearls were strung on, the buried treasure, the figure in the carpet. He began to flush, the numbers on his bumps to come out. Vereker's books had a general intention? I stared in my turn. You don't mean to say you don't know it. I thought for a moment he was playing with me. Mrs. Dean knew it. She had it, as I say, straight from Corvick, who had, after infinite search and to Vereker's own delight, found the very mouth of the cave. Where is the mouth? He told after their marriage and told alone the person who, when the circumstances were reproduced, must have told you. Have I been wrong in taking for granted that she admitted you, as one of the highest privileges of the relation in which you stood to her, to the knowledge of which she was, after Corvick's death, the sole depositary? All I know is that that knowledge is infinitely precious, and what I want you to understand is that if you'll in your turn admit me to it, you'll do me a kindness for which I shall be lastingly grateful. He had turned at last very red. I dare say he had begun by thinking I had lost my wits. Little by little he followed me. On my own side I stared with a livelier surprise. Then he spoke. I don't know what you're talking about. He wasn't acting. It was the absurd truth. She didn't tell you? Nothing about Hugh Vereker. I was stupefied. The room went round. It had been too good even for that. Upon your honor? Upon my honor? What the devil's the matter with you? He growled. I'm astounded. I, I'm disappointed. I wanted to get it out of you. It isn't in me. He awkwardly laughed. And... Even if it were, 
If it were, you'd let me have it. Oh, yes, in common humanity. But I believe you. I see. I see. I went on, conscious with the full turn of the wheel of my great delusion, my false view of the poor man's attitude. What I saw, though I couldn't say it, was that his wife hadn't thought him worth enlightening. This struck me as strange for a woman who had thought him worth marrying. At last I explained it by the reflection that she couldn't possibly have married him for his understanding. She had married him for something else. He was to some extent enlightened now, but he was even more astonished, more disconcerted. He took a moment to compare my story with his quickened memories. The result of his meditation was his presently saying with a good deal of rather feeble form, This is the first I hear of what you allude to. I I think you must be mistaken as to Mrs. Drayton Dean's having had any unmentioned and still less any unmentionable knowledge of Hugh Vereker. She'd certainly have wished it, should it have borne on his literary character, to be used. It was used. She used it herself. She told me with her own lips that she lived on it. I had no sooner spoken than I repented of my words. He grew so pale that I felt as if I had struck him. Ah, lived, he murmured, turning short away from me. My compunction was real. I laid my hand on his shoulder. I beg you to forgive me. I've made a mistake. You don't know what I thought you knew. You could, if I had been right, have rendered me a service, and I had my reasons for assuming that you'd be in a position to meet me. Your reasons? he asked. What were your reasons? I looked at him well. I hesitated. I considered. Come and sit down with me here, and I'll tell you. I drew him to a sofa, I lighted another cigar, and, beginning with the anecdote of Vereker's one descent from the clouds, I recited to him the extraordinary chain of accidents that had, in spite of the original gleam, kept me till that hour in the dark. I told him in a word just what I've written out here. He listened with deepening attention, and I became aware, to my surprise, by his ejaculations, by his questions, that he would have been, after all, not unworthy to be trusted by his wife. So abrupt an experience of her want of trust had now a disturbing effect on him, but I saw the immediate shock throb away little by little, and then gather again into waves of wonder and curiosity, waves that promised I could perfectly judge to break in the end with the fury of my own highest tides. I may say that today, as victims of unappeased desire, there isn't a pin to choose between us. The poor man's state is almost my consolation. There are really moments when I feel it to be quite my revenge. That's the end of the story. There we go. It's eating him alive. This obsession with the secret, which was never revealed to him. Somehow this turned into the life of a critic and not the life of the novelist. He has wasted his life searching for something that actually seems to be real, but which he himself could not find. 
and in the end, making another person miserable, an otherwise blissfully married man, a grieving widower now, who suddenly has to realize that his wife either didn't love him or didn't trust him, or perhaps was protecting him, a fellow reviewer who now has a new obsession to eat away at him. It's a consolation for the narrator, but even more than that, a revenge. A revenge. A revenge. A revenge for not having been told, for being on the outside of a secret looking in a life pressed against the glass while those on the other side of the glass have lived their lives, even living, even his still living while they've all died is hollow and empty because when they were alive, they had this secret. They somehow lived it. And it's only or especially for married couples. And I'm feeling good about my theory. Dear listener, my theory that this is about James never getting to live the fullest life he wanted to live. I'm also feeling good that James didn't spell it out any more than he did. There's no need. The story is stronger for being a bigger mystery, unknowable or nearly so. It can stand for the obsessed pursuit of all kinds, not because it's futile, but because futility is a risk. James doesn't give us the truth, but that's not because the truth isn't there. It is there. It's just not there for this guy, not accessible by him but accessible by others. He's jealous of those others, but by not naming the secret, the secret is expanded out into something that we can all share. We all search for this figure. It can be any number of things in any number of bodies of work or artists, any number of carpets that we search for this meaning. The meaning exists. It's findable. We can find it. And if we do, we can make meaning of our life as George Corvick did, as Gwendolyn did. And it's the absence of it did for our narrator. Made meaning of his life, too, in some sense. Even our, even our narrator who was left snarling for revenge. That's a kind of life lived as well. The life where you're glad to see others tormented by the same pain that afflicts you. There's those who know and those who are condemned to not knowing. The stakes in this story, as in this game of literature, as in our search for meaning in life, are high. They were high at the beginning. They are high at the end. Ah, narrator. Ah, humanity. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this special two-part episode of the History of Literature. I'm so exhausted I can't even bring myself to tell you what else we have coming up. Ah, but let me just say... Our next guest is an absolute delight. We have a very fun one coming up. And some Marquis de Sade is in the works. What a wild ride that is. We've got some Southern Gothic in the works with a poet who writes from that tradition. And a look at the writers of Northern Ireland. And oh, so, 
so much more lots more henry james oh man he's so good i thought i'd be exhausted i thought i'd be tired out instead i want to go read some more we'll try to do him at least once more this year i hope you're enjoying this dive into henry james as much as i am i'm jack wilson thank you for listening and we'll see you next time